Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, today we are into week two of two weeks on the authority of Scripture, which is part of our wider series on the nature of Scripture. And in the pre-sermon time last week, we read a little section from the Westminster Confession of Faith, written in the 1640s. This morning, what I want to do, since after all, we're Baptists, uh, is to read a statement from the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. And as I read this, here's your quiz. Does this statement sound at all familiar to you? If so, where do you think you've heard it before? So here's the statement on the authority of Scripture from the 1689 Baptist Confession. The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed, depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. Therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. So how did you do on the quiz? Did you recognize uh, the words of that statement? If you were saying to yourself, as I read through that, wow, the words of the Baptist Confession sound pretty much the same as the Westminster Confession. Well, if, if you're saying that to yourself, then you scored 100% on the quiz. Uh, the 1689 Baptist Confession is actually based firmly on the earlier Westminster Confession of Faith. It turns out that Baptists uh, believe pretty much the same things as uh, Presbyterians do, and so we borrowed not only their section on the authority of Scripture, but also most of their entire excellent uh, written confession of faith. Well, blessings to you now as we go into part two of our series on the authority of Scripture. Blessings on you as we continue to worship now in music. Good morning, everybody. I trust that you already are being blessed in our time of worship this morning. It's just been a great time as I've sat here in the sanctuary with uh, just a, a scant few brothers and sisters. Um, thank you to each person who has uh, contributed and participated so far. Uh, let's continue in the prayerful spirit that Robert has just uh, created for us uh, in his prayer. Let's bow our heads and hearts one more time. Father, we thank you that we have your word. Your word is like fire. It is like a hammer, Lord God. I pray that your word would uh, press into us and come out of us in our lives, that we would be increasingly people who know the word, people of the word, people who love the word. And Father, now I pray your help as uh, we enter into another time of speaking of the authority of your word. I pray for your help as the preacher, and I pray for all of those who are listening from wherever they are listening, that you would come and draw very near in a rich way, in a beautiful way, in an encouraging and life-giving way. I pray these things in Jesus' name for your sake. Amen. One night, many years ago now, my brother and I were up in the wilds of northern Alberta, as we liked to do, and on this particular night, we were walking home from our friend's place along a very narrow, windy 
sandy path. And there was no light to speak of as we walked along. It was pretty much completely dark. And as it happened, as we were trudging along on this path through the dark, my brother's face collided with some dead branches that happened to be sticking out onto the pathway. And he ended up with some very significant wounds and scars on his forehead and on his face that actually took weeks to heal. And of course, the thing that would have prevented this accident, this incident, was a simple flashlight. But we didn't think to bring a flashlight with us earlier in the day when we'd gone to visit with our friends. You can get really hurt if you are moving around in the dark with no light. You need light. You need a flashlight to dispel the darkness that's in front of you so that you can see your path. Well, as the psalmist celebrates God's word, and we've heard uh, the text sung and spoken already today a number of times, as the psalmist celebrates God's word in Psalm 119, verse 105, he says to God, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Your word, O God, is like a flashlight, a flashlight that lights my way. Your word is a light source that illumines my dark, sinful heart and shows me the way to go. The Apostle Peter in the New Testament picks up on that verse from the Psalms when he says in 2 Peter 1.19 that the prophetic word, so in other words, God's word, is a lamp shining in a dark place. The written word of God, the Bible, is a lamp shining in a dark place. The written word of God is our flashlight. It lights up our darkened hearts. It shows us God's path so that we don't get scarring on our face, so to speak, as we walk along. Isn't it good news, friends, that God has exhaled into this world his light, this word, this Bible? J.I. Packer celebrates with the psalmist and with Peter when he writes this. He says, quote, Bless God for the light that he has given us for our journey through this dark world. That light is the Holy Scriptures, the inspired word of canonical instruction on God and godliness, which shines as a light in this very dark place. Close quote. Well, as believers, we just are so genuinely thankful, aren't we? Genuinely thankful for the Bible that God has given us. But here's the tragic thing. The tragic thing, friends, is that masses of people around us in our world have decided that this flashlight is unnecessary that it's cumbersome for their lives, that it's even useless for their lives. Carl F. Henry, Carl F. H. Henry, was an important 
American evangelical theologian who lived through most of the 20th century, in fact, writing in 1979, so only 40 years ago, Henry noted how modern people around him in 1979, how modern people were repudiating or abandoning divine absolutes. People in 1979 America were abandoning revealed truth. They were repudiating scriptural commandments, giving up on fixed principles and supernatural purpose, he said. And they were doing so in the belief that such things were obstacles to personal fulfillment. The thought was that if a person wanted to come to self-realization, that that person had to get rid of external authorities like God and his Bible. They had to get rid of those external authorities and choose instead one's own preferred values for oneself. In Henry's words, quote, in this view of things, supernatural being, transcendent revelation, and divine decrees are threats to the meaning and worth of human existence. Well, this was the mood in 1979 America, and I dare say that things haven't changed all that much 40 years later, not only in America, but also right here in Canada. How did we get here? Well, of course, that's a massive question, and I think it could potentially be answered in a number of ways. Last Sunday, we began our abbreviated tour through 500 years of history. We began last week with a sort of cursory description, brief description, of part of what happened during the 16th century Reformation. Well, this week, this Sunday, our plan is to move forward in time now, moving from the 16th century through the 17th, 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. I know that's very ambitious, but we're going to try to do that. And even into these initial years now of the 21st century in which we find ourselves. We want to trace briefly, starting next week and into this week, trace briefly how biblical authority or notions of biblical authority have waxed and waned during the past 500 years, leading us to our current moment that we find ourselves in. Now, I mentioned last week that last week and this week would be more kind of teaching-focused. That's what we're doing here this morning. So hang on to your hats Here we go, back on our abbreviated tour of 500 years of history. Now, if you remember last week, we had talked about how in the 16th century, Luther and Calvin and other reformers sought to clarify the the supreme authority, the final authority of the Bible, and they were doing that against the counterclaims of the Roman church. The reformers held a high view, a high view of the authority of Scripture, and they have bequeathed to the church 
a veritable treasure trove of thinking on the nature of the Scripture, uh, of the place of Scripture, the primacy of Scripture in the Protestant church. But following on the heels of the Reformers and their work, there came, in the 17th century, there came what John Frame has described as a convulsion in the intellectual world. And this convulsion in the intellectual world was what we call the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment, or what is sometimes called the Age of Reason, would last, and I know this is arguable, but it would last for roughly 200 years from uh, the 17th, uh, in the 17th and in the 18th centuries. And it was in this period when the tide began to turn dramatically when it came to the subject of Scripture's authority. Here, we went from the insistence of the Reformers that Scripture was the final authority, now to the idea that human reason was the final authority even over Scripture. During the Enlightenment, human reason was elevated to a place of supreme and final competence. And in the words of Alistair McGrath, it became assumed, he says, that human reason was, quote, supremely qualified to judge Christian beliefs and practices with a view to eliminating any irrational or superstitious elements, close quote. Early on in the Enlightenment, you had a person like Lord Herbert, Herbert of Cherbury in England arguing that so-called divine revelation was to be demoted so that it fell underneath the bar of human reason, under what he thought to be the higher authority of human judgment. And a little later, you had the very influential Baruch Spinoza over in the Netherlands, who likewise insisted that Scripture be subjected to the authority of the human mind, rather than the opposite. Again, Spinoza insisted that Scripture be subjected to the authority of the human mind, rather than the opposite. Spinoza wanted the Bible to come under what he considered to be all-powerful human reason. He contended that we should approach the Bible just like any other book. In his words, the Bible should be divested of, quote, its halo of infallibility and be subjected to the same critical scrutiny due any ancient book. Close quote. Baruch Spinoza. Moving forward a few years into the 18th century, over in Germany, there were a couple of guys named H.S. Reimarus and Gotthold Lessing. So Reimarus, there on the left, 
He was a schoolmaster in Germany who had written a, a rather lengthy manuscript, and he'd written it in private. He did not intend to publish it. But in that work, Raymaris denigrated the Bible, and he claimed that miracles were impossible and that the record of miracles in the Bible need only be explained by a naturalistic worldview. So some of us are old enough uh, to remember A&E's Mysteries of the Bible. I don't know if you remember that program, but in almost every episode of that program, they would try to explain away every miracle in the Bible with some sort of natural explanation. Well, the producers of that show were really standing on the shoulders of H.S. Raymaris, who 250 years earlier had made similar claims. Well, anyway, what happened was that shortly after Raymaris died, Gotthold Lessing got hold of Raymaris's manuscript. Sorry for the very bad pun there. Lessing got hold of that manuscript, and he decided that it needed to be published anonymously. But Lessing, for his part, developed the argument that history was irrelevant to Christian faith. His argument was that faith could not be founded upon historical events. History, Lessing said, does not provide the basis for truth. Instead, for Lessing, faith and truth had to be validated and founded upon human reason working in the present moment. So Lessing argued, for example, that historical events like the crucifixion and like the resurrection of Jesus were far less important for faith than a person's enlightened reason was. Now just to pause here in our historical tour, I hope we can start to trace a pattern already. From the Reformation, where Luther and Calvin and their high view of scriptural authority was happening, into the Enlightenment, when influential thinkers and writers like the people that we've just described began to take their own reason, their own knowledge as being superior to any so-called divine revelation. In the words of Colin Brown, quote, the enlightened thinkers, listen to this, the enlightened thinkers imagined that they had superior knowledge or that what they did not know was not worth knowing. Or in the words of Matthew Barrett, quote, the enlightenment man confidently declared to the world that he had come of age intellectually and it was now time to liberate himself from the assumptions he had previously inherited from Mother Christendom. This was the mood of the Enlightenment when it came to religion, when it came to the Bible, and when it came to questions surrounding the authority of the Bible. The Enlightenment thinkers promoted the idea that we must be 
lords and judges over Scripture, deciding for ourselves whether Scripture was reasonable, instead of the idea that our thoughts must be captive to Christ and captive to his revealed world word. While moving forward in time, we're still on this quick tour here. Another German philosopher who was actually a towering figure of the Enlightenment was Immanuel Kant, whose position on divine revelation, his position on the Bible is summarized, I think, well and briefly by Philip Edgecombe Hughes, who writes this, quote, the only true revelation according to Kant is the God within ourselves who speaks to us through our own reason and whom we worship in the duty of honoring our moral obligations. For Immanuel Kant, there was no external supernatural communication from God. In other words, the Bible for Kant was not a supernatural communication. Instead, for Kant, religion was once again reduced to the bounds of pure reason, and religion for him centered especially on ethics, on ethical questions. Immanuel Kant. Well, as we inch out of the Enlightenment period now into the 19th century, so now we're in the 1800s, we come to still another important and influential German uh, philosopher and theologian, a man named Friedrich Schleiermacher. That's a mouthful, Friedrich Schleiermacher. J.I. Packer has called Schleiermacher the archetypal teacher of liberal theology. And Gerald Bray has called him the father of liberal German theology in the 19th century. So there's a natural connection from Schleiermacher into 19th century liberal theology, which we're going to talk about in just a minute here. Schleiermacher, see I can't even say it, Schleiermacher is a bridge figure between the Enlightenment period that we've talked about and Protestant liberalism that arose just after his lifetime. So the basic idea that Schleiermacher promoted was that religious truth is not something that comes to us from an external source like the Bible. Instead, he argued, religious truth is to be found within oneself. For Schleiermacher, it is our own individual religious experiences and religious feelings. It is the non-rational side of us that is the starting point and the source of theology instead of the written scriptures. The scriptures, Schleiermacher said, are merely the record of what the earliest believers experienced. It's not an objective word of God speaking to us, it's just a record of their experiences 
And so for Schleiermacher, the scriptures ended up being dispensable for faith. Schleiermacher tried to show that he was coming from a different angle than many of those Enlightenment figures that we've described. Schleiermacher said that it wasn't human reason or rationality that was supreme in matters of religion. Instead, it was human feelings. Private subjectivity, that was the supreme thing. And particularly for Schleiermacher, it was a feeling of absolute dependence and oneness with God. That was the thing. Now, friends, as I describe Schleiermacher, I wonder if you can see reflections of his thought yet lingering in the contemporary church. Is there evidence still today in our ranks that religious feelings or religious experiences are valued more, uh, held to be more important and more authoritative than the objective words that God has breathed out in the Bible. Well, this is the very unfortunate legacy that Schleiermacher has bestowed on us. When we make our own religious feelings and experiences to be the main thing, what happens is that when, we're th when we think we're talking about God, Really, we just end up talking about ourselves. While we are coursing along here in our abbreviated tour of 500 years of history, now we reach the latter part of the 19th century, see how fast we've gone, and into the 20th century, when something called Protestant liberalism was on the rise. Now, a good short definition of what Protestant liberalism is and what it does comes to us from Matthew Barrett. He says this, quote, Protestant liberalism was an intentional renovation of Christian orthodoxy to accommodate Enlightenment thought. One more time. Protestant liberalism was an intentional renovation of Christian orthodoxy to accommodate enlightenment thought. Now, here is where things get rather personal for me because I was raised in a theologically liberal church prior to the time that I was converted to Christ in my early 20s and then began to gravitate to the opposite side of the theological spectrum. The essence of Protestant liberalism is an insistence on keeping spiritual experience and human judgments as the supreme authority. Rather than making an externally given revelation like the Bible to be supremely authoritative. One more time, the essence of theological liberalism is an insistence on keeping spiritual experience and human judgment, human reason, as supreme authority instead of any externally given revelation like the Bible being uh, uh, supremely authoritative. 
A sense of God, a sense of God, that's what's needed, argued the theological liberals, and that sense of God can evolve as we evolve as, as a human species. As culture evolves, so goes the argument, so will our view of God. It will evolve too. In Protestant liberalism, the Bible is only a written testimony of ancient people's experiences of God. It is not to be taken as God's authoritative word for all time. Well, you may have noticed here, if you're paying attention, that theological liberals have drunk very deeply from the wells of Immanuel Kant and Friedrich Schleiermacher and earlier Enlightenment thinkers, whether they realize that fact or not. And as J.I. Packer has pointed out, the effect of theological liberalism is to gag God, to silence God, since there is a strong denial that God could, could possibly communicate with us authoritatively for all time through the written words of the Bible. Now here I want to read to you two sentences from J.I. Packer as he summarizes 19th century Protestant liberalism. Packer says, inevitably, with no word from God, he's talking about theological liberals, with no word from God to check man's thoughts by, 19th century thinkers equated God with their own feelings and fancies about God, thus, in effect, absorbing him into themselves in a way that prompted the atheist Feuerbach to comment that when men talked of God, they were really talking about themselves in a loud and solemn voice. It was this God, God in the mind, as we may call him, whom Nietzsche pronounced dead, and whom Marxists, Darwinists, and Freudians decided in due course that they could get on better without. Packer's statement gets at the devastating effect of 19th century Protestant liberalism. Now, blessedly and providentially, it was in this same time period, in the, in the latter 1800s into the 1900s, when God raised up men like B.B. Warfield and J. Gresham Machen at Princeton University. These men staunchly, rigorously defended the authority of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, the trustworthiness and truthfulness of the Bible. They fought against the rise of Protestant liberalism. Warfield and Machen, just to be clear, are two of my theological heroes. These were men who fought hard to regain, to revive the Reformation position on Scripture. And in fact, Warfield's work on the nature of Scripture remains 
massively important in any discussion of the nature of Scripture. Machen, for his part, argued that Protestant liberalism was in fact a completely other thing than Christianity. He wrote, listen to this quote from Machen, liberalism is totally different from Christianity for the foundation is different. Christianity is founded upon the Bible. It bases upon the Bible both its thinking and its life. Liberalism, on the other hand, is founded upon the shifting emotions of sinful men. Close quote. Well, one of the claims of 19th century liberalism was that people were basically good. There was a euphoric sort of optimism around the potential of human beings and the capabilities of human beings. And then, near the start of the 20th century, World War I happened, which served to expose how hollow that optimistic, liberal idea of human beings really was. During this time, there lived a Swiss pastor and theologian named Karl Barth. Barth, up to the start of the war, had been solidly liberal in his approach. But when the war started and when the war progressed, Bart found that his theologically liberal ideas, his optimistic outlook on human beings, these things were just simply not preaching very well when the horrors of World War I started to pile up. And so what happened for Bart was that he swung over to the side of conservative or a more conservative theology. Now, Bart is controversial in many circles, to be sure, but he's unquestionably one of the most important theologians to come out of the 20th century. Bart wrote a massive systematic theology that encompasses several volumes. He wrote commentaries on Romans and 1 Corinthians and Philippians. He's been extremely influential in the world of theology. However, his view of Scripture has been controversial. Now, Bart is a little slippery sometimes, but, but in a nutshell, Bart would not say that the Bible is the Word of God. The most he would say is that the Bible contains the Word of God, or the Bible becomes the Word of God as God confronts people with it. But the Bible is not the Word of God. Well, friends, at this point, I wonder if you're now seeing the roller coaster. <laughs> the roller coaster that has been the last 500 years with regard to the Bible and its authority and how the Bible and its authority have been perceived. Have you seen the roller coaster? We've come from the Reformers with their high view of Scripture 
through the twists and turns of the 17th and 18th century enlightenment, and then through 19th century Protestant liberalism up to the 20th century and Karl Barth. And now we want to talk just briefly about the rest of the 20th century leading up to the 21st century, our day. What really became uh, almost a controlling factor in the study of the Bible throughout most of the 20th century was a whole enterprise called historical criticism. Historical criticism has to do with taking a hard look at the human character of the Bible. So questions like, what was the process of the human process of transmitting the text? What's that all about? How did texts develop over time? Where did these texts in the Bible originate? What, what, were, what were the sociological, political, economic, cultural, religious contexts of the biblical writings? These are the sorts of questions that are important for historical criticism. The, the idea with historical criticism is to get behind the texts to discover details of origin, to reconstruct the events that precipitated the text rather than focusing on the texts themselves as we have them. Now certainly there's some real value in this sort of approach to the Bible, but as Matthew Barrett has pointed out, this kind of scholarship where scholars too often assumed the position of Lord and judge over the text, this approach had the untoward effect of planting seeds of doubt concerning the biblical text. In the 20th century, the question then reared up again, just as it had in the Enlightenment, can we really say that the Bible is divine revelation? Well, all of this leads us right back in our abbreviated tour of 500 years to those incisive observations that we considered at the start of the message today, those observations that were made by Carl F.H. Henry in 1979, just 40 years ago. Again, Henry observed that most modern people were repudiating divine absolutes, abandoning revealed truth and scriptural commandments, leaving behind the idea that their lives and the world around them had some sort of divine purpose. What people were doing instead was they were affirming their own individual autonomy and choosing their own preferred values while claiming that so-called divine decrees, so-called divine revelation was a threat to the meaning and worth of human existence. That was 1979. In 2020, there are masses of people around us who simply assume that there is no overarching truth that applies to every single human being. The assumption is that there's no objective truth to be had in the world. No one single standard of truth can be valid for everyone. Truth for you 
may not be truth for me. There are truths, plural, and there is not a truth, singular. And the assumption today is that texts like the Bible depend on the response of the reader. Their meaning has not been embedded into the text or intended in the text by the author. It's up to the reader to make his response and judgment on the text. And thus, it's impossible to say that the Bible carries with it an authority. And as for the church, well, it's nice and fine if the church stays on the periphery in its own little quaint, private enclave, but the church must never attempt to penetrate back into the culture or else. This is the postmodern mood of our day. Well, friends, to sum up what we've been laboring to show this morning, the basic fact is that from the time when the reformers passed off the scene, there has been a basic crisis with regard to biblical authority. From the Enlightenment to Protestant liberalism, right up to postmodernity, there has been a basic trend to abandon the primacy of Scripture and the authority of Scripture, and very sadly, very sadly, even within the contemporary evangelical church, there are those who would want to pose the same question that the serpent posed in the garden. Did God actually say? Is the Bible really a divine word? Can we trust the Bible? Is the Bible divinely breathed out after all, or is it really a human compendium? Does the Bible really have any sort of authority today? I mean, come on. Is the Old Testament still relevant in 2020? Doesn't the Bible look embarrassing in the light of the things that we've now concluded on in our culture? Shouldn't the Bible maybe be edited for the times or abandoned altogether? Doesn't the Bible contain errors? Did God actually say? And besides, some would say, aren't there more important things to do in the church than to sit under the sound of the Bible? Oh, we're a Bible-believing church, don't get us wrong. But there are so many other things that should take our attention and take priority. Listen, friends. When the church starts saying and thinking those sorts of things and posing those sorts of questions, we are now on the path in the dark, heading straight for the tree branches, and we're going to end up getting injured. 
If there was ever a time for us to double down on our conviction that the Bible is indeed the God-breathed, authoritative, inerrant, clear, necessary, and sufficient word of God, it is now. In his most recent book, The Gathering Storm, Al Mohler, who is the president of my alma mater, Southern Seminary, says this, Where you find faithful churches, you find people committed to the Bible, the infallible, inspired, inerrant word of God. Moeller says that when a local church loses faith in the Holy Scriptures, that church will soon crumble to the spirit of the age. And sadly, we see it happening all around us today. The Bible, my friends, is the divinely authoritative flashlight in our dark world, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It is a lamp shining in a dark place. The Bible is the supreme authority in all matters of faith and life because the Bible has been exhaled by Almighty God. The Bible, in the words of the reformer John Calvin, has the same authority as if we were hearing God's own voice. Calvin says, with the Bible, it is as if we are beholding with our own eyes the very essence of God. May the risen Jesus Christ, whose authority as the crucified, risen, ascended, and soon coming Lord of the universe and Lamb of God, his authority is uncontested. May Jesus, who died a sacrificial, propitiatory, redemptive death on the cross to atone for the sin of his people, may Jesus Christ fan into flame in each of us right now a fresh perception of the authority of his holy word. May we come increasingly, friends, to tremble under the word of God in a new way. May we stop yawning at the Bible if that has been the case with us. May we burn with a desire to read his word, to study his word, to learn from his word, to be convicted by his word, to obey his word, to share his word and spread his word and teach his word and preach his word and delight in his word and love his word for his great glory. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Your word is like a hammer, is like fire. Father, your word is the divinely God-breathed word that the darkened world and darkened hearts so desperately need. And I pray, Lord God, that during this time as we're looking at the nature of Scripture, that you would indeed fan into flame in us a revival that we would just hunger and thirst more and more for this revelation that you have given us for all time. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.